You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So the, there, this is a, a difficult, difficult passage for a couple reasons. For one, there's that weird part in the middle where it talks about Jesus going to this spirit prison and, and preaching to them. We're going to deal with that. But it's difficult in the sense that we need to know a lot more about the book of Peter to understand what, is, what he's talking about in this passage. And he's talking about suffering. And suffering is a question or a topic that we uh, tend to not want to deal with in our lives, but experience it maybe constantly. And so the message of, of this passage and of this sermon is this, is that the Christian should not fear for doing what is righteous, but should instead look to the example of Christ, who through suffering was exalted to the right hand of God and now rules over all opposition. The Christian should not fear suffering for doing what is righteous, but should have hope in Christ who has conquered all and is victorious over all oppression and opposition. And so to kind of go over this, we're going to go through uh, three things. First, we're going to look at what it means to suffer as a Christian. What is Peter talking about when he talks about us suffering as Christians? Second, we're going to jump into the text and talk about how we are to respond to uh, suffering when it comes up. And third, we'll look at Christ as a great example of suffering and how to deal with suffering. So first, let's unpack what Peter means when he talks about suffering. There, there is a, a, an assumed gap between what the New Testament means by suffering and what we experience in the modern world as suffering. So for a lot of us, maybe when we think of suffering, we are thinking of uh, physical persecution, right? We're thinking of um, the Roman Empire, which is kind of known for a systemic oppression of Christians, uh, violent acts, beheadings, uh, crucifixion, obviously, uh, being thrown in the Colosseum. And, and those are all real things that happened. But what's interesting about the, the book of First Peter is that these things were not happening at that time. So this, this systemic widespread persecution would come decades, maybe 100 years later. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't physical persecution. There was still Nero, who did some terrible, terrible things that are 
unspeakable even in a church setting. And the, the fact is that that was localized suffering. So what Nero did was it was a little bit short-spanned and local, and it wasn't widespread. So if it wasn't widespread and it wasn't uh, people dragging Christians out in the street and, and jailing them or killing them for their faith, what is the suffering that Peter is talking about? The suffering is the pressure of society to conform. The, the misunderstanding of what the Christian knows as righteous is not always the same as what the society knows as righteous. And so sometimes Christians will suffer ill treatment for doing what is right. That's the suffering that Peter's talking about. And the way he phrases his words in the book of 1 Peter is he, he communicates this suffering as a possibility. It's not even a certainty that you will suffer in this way. Now, I would argue it's a high probability, but it's not certain. Not, and, and also, he, he uses that phrasing to, to guard against the fact that not everything you receive and you, and you feel is suffering is actually Christian suffering. We have to guard against this fatalistic mindset of any slight offense being suffering that we experience. I mean, so some of us, you know, we're not acting righteously and we suffer and we think it's Christian suffering. That's not what Peter's talking about. And we shouldn't interpret everything that offends us as suffering. And Peter knows there's this overlap between the, what the world calls good and what the Christian might call good. Uh, a modern day example would be uh, the world and the Christian believe it's bad to litter. My friend Jeff thinks that's the worst sin you could possibly commit is littering. Um, uh, both the, the, the believer and the non-believer believes that you should help your neighbor. That's a good thing. And so when you aren't littering, the unbelieving world is not going to come against you. When you're helping your neighbor, the unbelieving world is not going to come against you. It's when you do things that are righteous that oppose the unbeliever that you might maybe receive ill treatment. It's when your stand for righteousness rubs against the culture. Later in chapter four, he talks about how the, the unbelieving world is going to be surprised when you don't uh, live along with them in, in drunkenness and idolatry, and they're going to heap abuse upon you. That's what the NIV says. And so when we say, you know what, and I can't go this weekend to um, the bar because it's not a righteous thing to do, that might rub against the culture, and you might seem weird to other people who are unbelievers. So this is the suffering that Peter is talking about. Christian suffering, in this context, is experiencing ill treatment for doing what is righteous. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we experiencing that type of suffering in our personal lives? Or are we maybe expecting it and looking out for it? Because again, remember, it's not, a, it's not a for sure thing that you will suffer this way. But again, I think it's highly probable. And for me, this might, this might just be very personal for me. But if I'm not encountering this type of ill treatment, or maybe even expecting it and kind of, kind of warning myself uh, that it might be coming, I wonder one of two things. One, am I really doing righteous deeds and righteous works? I, th I think in, in let's, let's just say our culture, I think righteous works should stand out. And so if no one's treating me illy for standing for what is righteous. Either I live in a society where we're just thoroughly Christian, or maybe, maybe my righteous works don't stand out or because I'm not doing them. I think the second option is even scarier. 
You see, in the, in the Roman Empire, there was no problem with you being Christian. So if you were a Christian, you believed in God, that's fine. The, the Roman Empire didn't care. They cared when you said, Jesus is Lord over Caesar and over all other false gods. And in fact, if you would just, you know, just say Caesar's Lord or just offer a little bit of incense at the altar of these false gods, we'll, we'll let you go, we'll let you be. And there's a whole controversy in Christianity of do we let these people who apostatize back into the church? And so in Rome, it was okay that you worshiped God so long as you didn't worship God exclusively. If you did that, you probably would not suffer the way Peter is talking about here. And so a worry that I have for myself, maybe not for you, is if I'm not expecting suffering or encountering suffering, am I devoted to God as I should be? Is my righteous work maybe mixing with some unrighteousness? And let me show you how easy this is. Maybe I pray at work before I have my lunch, but then my, my unbelieving work friends see me gossiping in the break room. Maybe I um, say, praise God when someone gives me a good report, and then they see me getting drunk on the weekends in the bars. They're not going to have a problem with that because this man is not dedicated to God. There's no problem with someone who is not telling me God alone is God. Let him do what he wants. He's just like us. And I think we have to guard against that. Don't go looking for suffering. Don't overestimate suffering. But I think suffering is a good marker of your righteous works and your commitment to God. So to summarize, Christian suffering is the experience of ill treatment for doing what is righteous. And what Peter starts to tackle in chapter 3, verse 13, is how do we respond to suffering? He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So the first thing you do when you respond to suffering is don't be afraid. And don't be afraid of what those who are causing you suffering and ill treatment are threatening you with. Peter's alluding back to Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse, around verse 12, uh, where God is telling Isaiah, hey, don't fear what your friends are fearing. And they were fearing an army coming against Isaiah and his friends. Don't be afraid, fear God. And we can think of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, um, uh, don't fear those who can kill just the body and not the soul, if you're God who can kill both the body and the soul. There's nothing that your accusers can do to you that God can't rescue you from and keep you safe from. So we ought not be afraid when suffering comes. Second, this is where things get tricky for us, is we are to respond and give a defense when we're asked for the hope that is within us. He starts off in verse uh, 15 by saying, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This means remain faithful to Jesus in all circumstances. In my last sermon, we talked about uh, the book of Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. They suffered physical persecution. And the point I made there was that they remained faithful. They didn't gather people to storm the capital. They didn't uh, flee to the mountains. They remained faithful. They trusted in God. They weren't afraid. And their faithfulness was honoring Christ as Lord, honoring God as Lord. So our response should be first faithfulness in the midst of suffering. But secondly, giving a defense. Now, a lot of you might know this verse as being an apologetics verse. Uh, 
verse that gives support to the fact that we should defend the faith against secularism, atheism, uh, evolution, the existence of God, the, the practice of defending the faith. And this verse certainly does mean that, but the, I think the more raw meaning of this verse is giving testimony as a defense. So our faithful testimony is the defense when someone asks why we're so hopeful. If someone comes to me and tells me why I'm so hopeful in my future and in my God, I'm not gonna tell them why evolution's wrong or why God exists. I'm gonna respond with my testimony. But the problem here is, well, here's how one commentator asks the question. And this is a question I have for myself and for you as well. How many Christians today could make an articulate statement of the reasons for their faith in Christ in terms that would be understood by modern society. According to Peter, believers must be able to relate the Christian faith to unbelievers by addressing their questions in terms they find meaningful. So the question is, how many of you can defend the uh, triune God? It's not how many of you can defend against evolution arguments or atheism. The question is, how many of you this is a real question, can give faithful testimony in ways that the unbelieving world will understand? How many of us have even practiced giving our testimony in the face of opposition? You have testimony, you have something to share, and you should respond with that when you face suffering for doing righteous works. It is our faithful testimony that God uses to turn the hearts of unbelievers. And, and Daniel, Daniel was faithful and his testimony was one of faithfulness and that turned the heart, at least temporarily, of the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faithfulness turned things around. Their faithful testimony, they didn't go on a crusade to debate and argue. They went telling their testimony, living faithful to God. Our testimony must be, though, in line with the gospel. We must walk, we must have a walk that matches our talk. And any offense that is given towards us for our testimony ought to be against the message of the gospel and not the inconsistencies of our lives with it. Your testimony should be a faithful testimony, not a recounting of who God might be in your life. When you give testimony, you should be able to put to shame those who are accusing you. And in Peter's context, being put to shame meant disarming one's enemies and, and an enemy being, oh, sorry, being at the mercy of your enemy's feet. So when we give our testimony, there should be no rebuttal. There should be no, yeah, I see you praying, but I also see you gossiping. That's, that's a testimony. You're telling us it's about something, but it's not a good testimony. It's not a faithful testimony. And therefore, it's not a good defense. So, Take note also that Peter's response to suffering is not fleeing. And it's also not retribution. It's not responding in kind, but rather an extended invitation. As you encounter suffering, there, there might be a, a flight response for you to just leave. There might, you might be like me, like me, where there's more of a fight response where let's talk about this for four hours. I'd love to. That's bad also the response should be one of invitation. Let me tell you about God. Not arguing, not running, but inviting people in to listen to your testimony, your faith, and your God. 
Another commentator says that faith does not close doors to relationships with other people out of either fear or hate. It turns rather in openness to others just as it turns to God. There's a reason that the persecution of Christianity grew over time. It's because the church was exploding over time. Would the church have exploded that much if at any slight offense or slight suffering, they fleed? Probably not. Would it last as long if at any slight offense, they went to war? That didn't work out well for the Jews in that time period. Instead, they stayed. They were good citizens of their communities, but they remained faithful to God and the church flourished. We can see that around the world today. Churches that are being persecuted in other countries flourish because they remain and they share the testimony of the gospel. We do not isolate. We remain open, willing, and ready, ready to explain our life to the unbelieving world. So our response to suffering should be one lacking fear and filled with hope and expectation, ready to respond with our testimony of the gospel in our lives. And the greatest example of this is Christ. Now, we have to slow down. I have to slow down here and pause for a second. This is a difficult passage. I was reading a commentary, and one of the commentators said, this is probably the most difficult passage in all the New Testament. I was like, oh, sweet. I am, I am in danger. Um, it's, it's, I, talk, I was talking to Jay about it last week, and it's like, yeah, Peter's saying, you know, suffer for righteousness' sake, not for unrighteousness' sake. And, you know, Christ suffered for our sins. And then he went and preached to spirits in prison and then Noah baptism and then back to he's victorious. It's like this weird little detour. Um, and, and Andrew was telling me this morning, it, the problem is ours, not the Bible's. Like this stuff, it's weird because this stuff should click, right? You're reading along and it's, you, you feel like it should click, but it doesn't. And so we have to take some time to understand this. I'm not going to go through it all. My Mother's Day gift to you is you can come to me after the sermon and I'll tell you about it. (laughs) First in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And stop there. Christ suffered the greatest suffering. Obviously, he was physically tortured. His body broken, beaten beyond recognition. You know how that story goes. But he suffered the greatest suffering because he suffered unrighteousness as a fully righteous person. You might encounter suffering for your righteous works. You and I are not fully sinless, righteous people. And so Christ came as man and lived as a righteous man and suffered on our behalf. He took on the greatest suffering ever. And what made his suffering great was, again, his sinlessness. Now we get to the weird part. It says, in the latter half of 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there's a lot of interpretations out there. I'm going to give you the one I think is correct as of today, May 14, 2023. Um, Suffice it to say that this is communicating that Christ died at the hands of ungodly men and his body died, but he was made alive by the spirit, symbolizing his resurrection from the dead. 
And this going to prison, going to spirits in prison, is him proclaiming his victory over these evil spirits. It's almost, this might be a bad way to say it, but it's like a victory lap he took when he rose from the dead. He went and he proclaimed, I have been victorious, and he judges those evil spirits. And Peter includes in there Noah to, to, to communicate that Noah, though he was only eight in number, him and his family, they suffered greatly. Because, I mean, if you're building an ark and, and with no rain, it's kind of weird. But they remained faithful, and God brought them through the waters of chaos and death and brought them to new life. And, and we, are, we are with them in that sense. We, our numbers might be small, and the suffering might be great, but Jesus has risen from the dead and proclaimed victory over all opposition. And he says, that's what baptism is. You, you're baptized in the same manner. Baptism physically just washes dirt off, but it symbolizes that you were buried with Christ, thrown, plunged into the waters of death and chaos, and you've risen up again with him in new life, which means you share in that same victory. When Christ rose from the dead bodily, he lorded his victory over all demonic and evil spirits, this verse says. You share in that victory. Christ is victorious over the evils of all the natural and supernatural world. Schreiner says that the main point is this. Believers have no need to fear that suffering is the last word for they share the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering has secured victory over all hostile powers. And the application here is you share the victory. A lot, me, myself, a lot of us, we go through suffering and we try to get through it on our own power. We, we go through, let's say, I think a form of suffering is temptation. And we say, well, I can overcome this temptation. I can do this or that to get away from it, to get past it, to get through it until it subsides. And you're not using the greatest power that has ever existed ever, which is the victory, the victory of the risen Lord. Do you think when Jesus went to uh, preach against these demonic spirits and, and claim his victory over them that he was scared or might have had for a little bit of hard time to, to do that? He was proclaiming victory. Like it was not even a, a competition. And I don't, it puzzles me why we go through suffering and trials and temptation and don't call upon that same victory when we're going through things. Whether it's you trying to get through temptation, whether it's you trying to remain faithful through suffering, we share in the victory of Christ and we should use it. There, we should use it in the natural and in the supernatural world too. Um, I'm coming to realize that the unseen realm is more real probably than I thought it was. I hope that doesn't freak anyone out. I'm not like ultra charismatic now. It might be a couple years before that happens. Um, but, but it's not as simple as, well, you know, uh, I'm going through it because X, Y, and Z. There, there are evil forces out there that are trying to get you to turn away from Christ. There are enemies you can't physically fight or physically see. How are you going to deal with that? What are you going to do, put on your boxing gloves? Are you going to run away physically? There, there's a whole unseen realm out to get you. But the message is this. They already lost, and Christ is already victorious. And if we share in that victory, 
he will defeat and has defeated all opposition. Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has accomplished victory over all evil and demonic forces. And we can share in that victory and use it as we encounter suffering and hardships in the world. Our faith and hope is rooted in that victory, not in what we can do, but what Christ has already done. So in conclusion, remember, the Christian should not fear suffering for doing what is righteous, but should instead look to the example of Christ, who through suffering was exalted to the right hand of God and now rules over all opposition. And today we continue to proclaim that victory with communion. So if you have, grab your elements if you have them. First, we remember that the body was broken for us. Christ suffered physically on our behalf. His body literally ripped to shreds for us. And the apostle reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. When we take the cup, we remember the blood that was shed on our behalf by, a sin, by the sinless one to atone for our sins. And the apostle again, again reminds us, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink Paul also says that for often as you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death, his victory, until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the body and the blood. We thank you for your life as a faithful servant, as a man who came, lived righteously, died for sinners, and conquered over sin and death. Lord, as we encounter suffering in the world for remaining faithful to you, I pray, I know, God, that you will see us through, and I pray that we rely on that Holy Spirit power to see us through. Lord, open our eyes to, to the unseen realm and help us deal with our enemies. Help us to join in the, in the victory of your resurrection. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.